Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. Hello, uh, friends who are joining on Zoom. Hello, friends who are joining on Facebook Live, perhaps. This is uh, part two of what I'm calling a several part because I'm not sure how long it'll go. Uh, we're going to do it a good number of times between now and before the end of the year. And if there's still interest, maybe we'll continue it continue it after January 1st. Certainly, we'll have not exhausted the material. We're going to be just tasting a, a small little taste. I'd rather go slow and deep than try to have any kind of comprehensiveness um, and try to enrich our 5782, our living through a year of Shemitah, mostly decoupled from the land, unless there are farmers amongst us, mostly decoupled from the halachic religious obligations of Shemitah, particularly for living in the land of, uh, not in the land of Israel, meaning, meaning even if we were all from farmers, but we were farming the Central Valley as opposed to uh, the Negev, these laws just would not obtain in terms of requiring us to do anything different. And um, there's something lovely about a voluntary obligation to be voluntarily obligated to ideas and concepts that might um, awaken um, ways to think about being alive and being stewards of this earth that the original laws of Shemitah were supposed to do. We, we, we can claim we don't have to pay attention to it because we are exempt, but that's an, an overly convenient exemption. And as many of you know, many things are happening within Temple Beth Am this year, um, focusing on this. And uh, one of our foci is tech study. And I chose to teach something from Rav Cook's Shabbat Aretz. Last year, last week I spent, or two weeks ago actually, I spent uh, three quarters of the class or two thirds of the class giving an introduction to Rav Cook and to what this text might have meant uh, in real time and why it was particularly significant that a rabbi of his caliber was resurrecting the notion of ecological Torah, particularly at a time when the second Aliyah from both the the distant areas of Russia and from Yemen were bringing people who are very connected to the land back to the land of Israel. Uh, it was, it, I don't know if he chose that timing intentionally or ended up being just a poignant overlap, but he was writing this for and in some ways preaching to uh, a group of people who had um, uh, very, very uh, strong personal connections to the, the lands that they were working on both in their homelands and that they were going to have to start working with the land of Israel. And Rav Cook was offering them another way of thinking about the significance of that, particularly as the work was backbreaking and, and relentless, right? We can't really imagine what it was like to tame the land of Israel um, during that era and before the modern, modern technology of agriculture. Okay. And then we started reading and what we're reading from is not, Shabbat Haaretz, the halachic textbook, which he has, right? Part of this book is, are his kind of decisions, some of his piskei din on Shemitah. What he's mostly focusing on is, and this section is what's called the Hakdama, is the philosophical underpinnings of his approach to Shemitah and why it's significant for the Jewish people. So um, what I'm going to do is both send you a link to the text sheet um, if you want to actually have it on your screen, or I'll, and, and then I will also... Uh, share the screen. It's a different link than last week because I re um, uh, I added some text to it and extended it. So hold on one second. Let me do that. So we started with these first opening paragraphs of his 
Hakdama, his introduction to Shabbat Haaretz. And we got muddled somewhere in kind of paragraph Dalid or Hay. He links to the Zohar, the Kabbalistic text, making a wonderful midrash on the fact that um, when can we say, when can the Jewish people say that we are Goyachad, that we're a singular nation? Ba'aretz, on the land. So he starts with a very significant gambit saying there's something elemental um, about the luminousness of the Jewish people that is only represented when we are connected to the land. This is a judgment. He is basically speaking to all those who are reading this text, living in the Pale of Settlement, if the text got there, or in Arab lands, that you are missing something, right? You, there are a significant percentage, not only on a halachic mitzvah level, but on a nation identity level that is not accessible to you unless you are ba'aretz. That's how he's using um, the text from the Zohar. And then we get to this very hard to unpack, which is very common for Rav Cook. Uh, paragraph four. I'm going to read it through. We, I think we got to mostly the end of it last time. I'm going to read it through a little bit quickly now just to get the sense of it so we can go on to new texts. Hashmitah v'hayovel bazmanim. It's not even, not even clear where to put the, the commas here. Any, any close reading of Rav Cook requires an enormous amount of guesswork because his writing was not done, as we said last, last time, um, in essay form, it was done in burst form, and then it was collected, and then it had to be edited in a way that made sense. So it's just a guess where the commas go, and the commas obviously matter, right? Eats, eats shoots, and leaves tells us that commas matter where they go. Shemitah and Yobel, so the, the seven-year sabbatical cycle and the 50-year jubilee cycle, Bazmanim, either it's Bazmanim mityachasim zelazeh, which means they are related to one another in time, or the first three words are its own idea, Shemitah and Yovel Bazmanim are of time, are related to something um, grand about time. Mityachasim zelazeh, and they are related to one another. Kamo hachama v'halbana, like the sun and the moon, ba'olam in the world. Uchmo Yisrael v'ha'adam, and like um, the Jew, the particular Jew, and the universal human being when it comes to souls, right? Um, so it's interesting, the... the if we had to map this, it would seem to be that whereas Yisrael is a subset of Ha'adam and Yisrael is particular and Ha'adam is universal, it would seem to be that there's something he's saying about Chama and Levana, which are the same, that the sun is somehow universal and the Levana is particular, maybe, right, that every culture has a relationship with the sun, but the Jews also have a unique relationship with the moon, except that it doesn't match up entirely well because Chama would match up with Adam and Levana with Israel, and they're not in order unless he's writing in a chiastic order. Not sure. Yachas haprat v'haklal. Something about the relationship between the specific, the unique, the particular, and the klal, the general. Because he's trying to reel in with particular language and particularistic Jewish texts a um, an alertness within a people who are proudly particularistic that they owe something and they are claimed by a universal reality. And the universal reality is the earth itself, which is much bigger than the land of Israel, even though our expression of it is only, it comes out most um, loudly when we're in our land. Shehem, those particular and universal, are, are in a realm kind of a, an independent realm, which is more alive, Yoter Chai, the Yoter Ruchani, and more connected to the life of the spirit, 
Srichim Zelaze, and they need one another. Prat Hatsarich Laklal, the specific needs the general, Uchlal Hatsarich Laprat, and the general needs the specific. Assuming we got 70% of what he means there, and I'll, I would give us, an, and this is graded on a curve. If we got 70% of that, that's an A plus, right? What, what argument, what non-obvious argument might he be giving in that last line? When he mentions these dyads, right? Sun, moon, Yovel, Shemitah, which is interesting as a dyad because it's not like, they're actually, they seem to be cousins of one another, not opposites. So I'm not exa- exactly sure even how he's pitting them um, against one another. Israel and all of humanity and gen, uh, and the generic and the specific. In what way is he arguing that the prat, the specific, the subset, the microcosm needs or is dependent upon the general? And in what way is the general dependent on, upon the specific? What's the argument he's making that's not obvious? Thoughts? It's an actual question, not a rhetorical one. You don't have to have an answer, but I'm, I'm open if anyone does have an answer. I think he's making a, a rather audacious claim that is an unpopular and certainly uh, an uncommon claim to both listeners' ears. He's telling the Jews that they need the world, and he's telling the world, not that the world is listening, that they need the Jews. Right? He's telling the Jews that in, in, in your reclaiming of the land of Israel, which is your prat, that you need and are related to the Klal, the general human experience that we have on the, on, on the land. And I, I, what we know about it comes through the Torah's gift of Shemitah, but we actually owe something. We are uh, uh, inherently linked to the great Klal in which we live. And I think he's trying to make an argument that the world needs Shemitah, that the world ne- needs those verses in Leviticus, right? He's very much a... Um, uh, <laughs> He's a, he's, a, he's a renaissance man in the early 20th century in that he doesn't just live in the shtetl and the yeshiva and pay no attention to the world out there. But he, he's a from Jew, and he very much believes that the Torah is a gift to humanity. And he believes that this particular prowl that we got from God at Sinai, teaching us something about the world's reality, the klal of reality needs it. Right? The, the sun's dominance over the cosmos needs the moon's influence. And by the moon, I think he's representing the, the, the Jewish connection to a lunar calendar. So that's how he begins, right? That's how he begins. That's the, the, the end sort of of the beginning of the Hakdama, which is itself is beginning to Shabbat Aretz. Okay, so um, that was just finishing up the text that we mostly had done last week, um, but hadn't com- last time I hadn't completed it. Uh, thoughts or comments before I go on to the next one? Okay, I don't see any hands up. We'll go for it. If your hands are up on Facebook Live, I'm not, I, I won't know, so I'm sorry. Okay, we're not going to go all the way through um, paragraph by paragraph, but it turns out that the next few paragraphs I'm, um, I'm, I'm kind of doing in order, or at least most of them. Okay, this is literally the next line of the book. Paragraph five of this Hakdama. Uh, this is a very common trope. If you're, if you're, if you're aware of Midrashic writing, uh, it's very common to start with a verse from the tradition and then back Midrash why you are connecting it to this theme, right? And in fact, there was a whole um, typology of Midrash called the Petichta. You even hear the, in the word Petichta, uh, which is Aramaic, the word Peticha, an opening. What, what was a Petichta? A Petichta was a Midrash that didn't begin with the story or didn't begin with the lesson. It began with a verse from Job 
or a verse from Isaiah, and you, the reader, you're 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 in you know Breshit Rabbah, you're in Bamidbar Rabbah, you're in a book of Midrashim that's supposed to be about Genesis, it's supposed to be about um, the numbers, and all of a sudden the midrash begins with a verse from Job. It begins with that Pitichta, and then through the midrash you're being shown how that shines some light onto the text that you thought you were studying. So this is Rav Cook's you know version of a Pitichta, where he's going to start with a verse like he did up here. He started with um, this book from the this verse in the second book of Samuel, Mika Amchay Yisrael and now he's starting with another verse from somewhere else in the Torah. Um, also begins with a me. Mi goi gadol asher lo Elohim kovim elav. So let's look at that verse in context. Um, and then we'll go back to see what he says about it. But I always like seeing it in context. Um, this is, um, I believe, Parshad Ekev. It may be the end of Parshad Dvarim, but I think it's Parshad Ekev. Um, so it's the first few chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. We have Moshe, who some of you who are in my Rashi class, I know, announces himself at the beginning of his of his life as a prophet as Lo Ish Dvarim Anochi. I'm not a man of Dvarim. Here he is, the author of Dvarim, and he is retelling the story of the Israelite experience throughout the desert. Some of this are Moshe's words. Some of this are Moshe telling God's words. Ushmartem Asitem, you should guard them and do them. Them being the mitzvot. Ki hi chokmarchem uvinarchem. For this is a feminine it, it referring to the Torah, the teaching itself, um, is your source of wisdom, your chokhmah, and your source of understanding, your bina, le'eneha amim, with respect to other peoples, right? Either that, either that means that this is your way of understanding the rest of the world, or this is what is going to allow the world to see that you have chokhmah and bina. It's unclear, even in context, the, the Farshim disagree. Asher yishma who are going to hear all these rules, the Amru, and they're going to say, Alavai, by the way, this was the, the world's reaction to the Jewish people, right? They, the Jewish people arrive and we do our stuff and the world says, wow, what a great people, right? That just hasn't happened that commonly. But the Torah anticipated that it would. And, and they will say, anticipation, Rak am chacham v'navon, only a nation which is wise and discerning, hagoy hagadol hazeh, this great nation, right? Like we, we usually got the opposite response when we showed up and started being Jews in other people's lands. Uh, it, it's sort of like a, a wonderful fantasy tucked in here in Parshat Ekev that we're going to bring this light and people are going to thank us for it. And we're going to illuminate darkened corners of the world. It's obviously happened in some places, but it's not been the common reaction. The verse continues, or the next verse, Kimi goi gadol. Like, just imagine the Torah says, what kind of a great nation, Asher lo Elohim krovim elav, who has such a, a God close to it. Krovim is plural because Elohim, even though obviously it references theologically one God, it's a plural noun. So when Elohim is modified by an adjective, it oddly gets a public uh, plural adjective, who uh, has a, such a, a close God to it. Ka Adonai Eloheinu, just like Adonai our God, Bechol Koreinu Elav. Whenever we call upon God, God is right there. Okay, so that's that verse in context, right? Um, basically rhapsodizing about the wonderful relationship that Israel has with our God, and it's going to impress everybody, and they're going to say, oh, I wish I had that God in my life. Okay. Rav Cook lifts it out of context and begins with the verse. Kimi goi gadol asher lo Elohim krovim elav. 
Because what great nation who has a God so close at hand? Listen to this. Segulata shall knesset Israel hi. Segula is a loaded word. It's a loaded word for for others. It's not a loaded word for us, or at least for most of us. What does segula mean? Uh, it means a treasure, right? Am segula is the is the phrase that's often translated as a um, a treasure nation, and then get, that got transmuted into a chosen nation, a chosen people, right? We have in the Aliyah of the Torah, Sher Bachar Banu Mikol Hamim, who has chosen us. That's that root from all the other nations. So sometimes that phrase has been turned into the chosen people. But the original biblical um, phrase was not chosen as an adjective, but skula, right? um, treasured. Um, so the treasuredness, it's translated here. This is, again, the translation of Rabbi, um, uh, what's his name? Um, I have him quoted down here. Julian Sinclair. This is Rabbi Julian Sinclair's translation of uh, Rav Cook. I've made a couple of changes here and there just where I thought would be um, more easily understood. He translates, translates it as what is remarkable, right? The remarkable aspect or the treasuredness of Knesset Israel. Knesset Israel is its, its own phrase, which is loaded and is worth um, breaking down a little bit. It's a Kabbalistic term. Knesset means gathering. Israel means the Jewish people. You could translate it dryly as the gathering of the Jewish people. But Knesset Yisrael is really the, the, the Kabbalistic way of understanding the, the, the spiritual dimension and dynamism of the entire Jewish people who relate to God as a unit, right? So Knesset Yisrael is not just the combination of individual Jews, but it's as if all the Jews' psychic and spiritual power were contained as a, as one thing, and that in and of itself is in relationship with God. And in the Kabbalistic um, ladder, at the at the lowest level of of the Kabbalistic ladder, Shechina, it's also called Malchut um, in certain places. God descends from God's supernal perch and hovers over human reality, and that's where the Shechina can be with, can be intimate with, can mate with Knesset Yisrael. Okay, so it, it, this could either just mean the Jewish people as as a as a unit, as a people, or it could mean the the emanation of the Jewish people. The particular exquisite part of Knesset Israel is that that the Jewish people, not necessarily all individually, but as a whole, looked out on all of reality. Havaya is the gerund of lehavot to be. You know, you probably know in modern Hebrew that we don't really have the verb to be in the present tense. You don't say ani hove kan, I am here. We just take that out. I, I say ani kan. We only have the verb to be in modern Hebrew in the future tense, ani eye, or in the past tense, ani hayiti. In biblical Hebrew and certainly in poetic Hebrew, um, the verb to be did exist in a, in a present tense and also in adjectival gerunds. Uh, that hove is the proper form of a pa'al verb of the verb to be. We just don't hear it a lot in modern Hebrew. And havaya is the is being, reality, right? That the Jewish people look out upon reality, kula entirely, be'aspeklaria ha'me'ira shel kodesh. Through an illuminating prism of holiness. Aspeklaria, you can see it comes from um, the, the same Greek root that gives us a you know, spectacle, um, something which something that you see through, like something, something to do with vision. 
the Jewish people look out at all of reality, alavai, through a in, an illuminating prism. How is he translated here? Um, through the lens of holiness. It's it, it's it's bigger than a lens. It's it's an entire visual and um, experiential prism of holiness. Bechol oz chayeha himakeret, using all of the strength of her life. Remember the, the her here is the the, the the grammatical her in Hebrew is going to go back to Knesset Israel, right? This emanation, spiritual emanation of the Jewish people, which as is a feminine form. It's also thought of as a feminine aspect in the same way that God has a masculine and a feminine aspect and places where that overlaps in the Kabbalistic idea. So too the Jewish people have a masculine presentation and a feminine presentation. So it's both conceptually feminine here and also grammatically feminine. So if you keep seeing that feminine all the way through, that's why. But with all of her slash its life force, Hima Keret, she, Knesset Israel, understands. Shehachayim shavim heim et erkam. Life is only worth its value. Shavim is worthy or, or, or being enough. Erech is from the word meaning value. Is only worth its value. Rak be'ota mida shehem. This is a great Rav Cookian word. I think he invented it. Elohim. That double yud is not a typo. He is creating uh, a wonderful Hebrew adjective from the concept of God, right? We have it in English, godliness, right? But he's saying Elohim, Elohi, godly, and now plural. God, it, the, that because it is modifying Chaim, and Chaim is plural, right? So if we break that down again, that life is only worth its full value when it is experienced, I'm adding some words here to fill in, through, at, through its godliness possibility, right? How is he translated here? Um, life has the greatest value to the extent that it is infused by godliness, okay? The Chaim Sheinam Elohim, and God that, and life that was out, was without godliness, he's definitely making a statement here, which I'm not saying I agree with, by the way, on whether or not one can achieve a certain beautiful imprint on the world through the lens of secularism. He's very much in favor of a godly life and life that is not Elohim, godly, a nam shavim la ma'uma. It ain't worth much. Right now, if we took this half of a paragraph, you'd have no idea we're in a treatise about Shemitah, right? He's, he's pulling back to some essential concepts so that he can go from that essential place and explain, explain to you, and it's going to take a few paragraphs to get there, why Shemitah and Yovel and our use of the land is an exquisite and required representation of living life in a godly way. Um, again, stop me at any time because uh, this has its own rhythm and momentum, but hand up either you know, by unmuting yourself or by putting your digital hand up. He yodaat od, she, Knesset Israel, also knows, that in truth, life actually isn't divine or as divine as it could be. It's not only that without living in this Elohi way, your life won't have the impact it could have. It's not really worthy of being called life at all. And this knowledge which is placed deeply in the character, tchuna is a characteristic of her, Knesset Israel's soul or spirit, 
great language that's going to be very hard to uh, translate. Imprints, matba'at is from the root teva, tet bet ayin, like a matbeya is a coin. Um, a matbeya is also like uh, when we talk about what's the matbeya for this coming week of davening, it's the lineup. It's the, it's the, it's the thing that we have, um, we have like coined or said is going to be the, the, the lineup for tefillah this Shabbat. Sometimes we say that if you're doing a, a departure from the normal liturgy, it's a departure from the matbeya. So it's about a fixed imprinting. So uh, to go back, just to get the rhythm, this knowledge, which is deep within the Jewish people's soul, um, impresses upon her, her being Israel, at Chotam Erkad, the seal of her value, Hamyuchadla. Meaning, it's not only that Israel knows this, it's that this thing that Israel knows is one of the things that is unique about Israel, right? According to Rav Kook. It is a Chotam Erka Hamyuchadla. Welcome, Bonnie. Um, I should probably put back in the chat if you want to. I'm sharing my screen, but if you also want to just open or have access to the doc, doc yourself, I'll reshare it. One second. Sorry, I'm so late. That's okay. I assume you brought a, a, a note from your from your teacher saying that you were you had to stay after class or something. So it's okay. Matbat aleh at chutam erkaham yuchadla. It imprints upon the 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 the, the, the presence of the of the Jewish people, that seal which is unique to it, to her, Hamudba al Kol Yachid Yachid He had he had been talking about all of Knesset Israel, and now he's making the argument. I don't know if he's making the following argument essentially, or um, or contingent. Meaning, is he saying that? Well, let me tell you what he's saying, and then I'll tell you what are the possibilities. It is not only imprinted on. Knesset Yisrael, but it's also imprinted, mutba. Al kol yachid yachid. And on every individual, mi yachideha. Individually, right? He's either saying, and this, if he's saying this, this is a little controversial, that on a nation race level, on a blood level, if you're a Jew, you have this imprinted on your soul inherently, or he would be making the argument that if you take this teaching, which is coming out of our tradition seriously, it's not only therefore an emanation of the Jewish people as a whole, it's, it's emanating from each individual Jew. It doesn't just have collective power, it has individual power. I kind of prefer the second reading, and that doesn't mean that I'm, it's right. He, he very well could have been making the first reading. I like the second reading because he's about to say, it's not only the case that if all of the Jewish people are making the connection to Shemitah that he hasn't made yet, but we know that's what he's talking about. It's not just the case that if all the Jewish people take Shemitah and the land laws seriously, that we will therefore illuminate the world more than we would otherwise. And we, through it, we will be expressing our unique Jewish contribution to the world. It's also the case that each individual Jew has mutba, has imprinted upon his or her soul something unique and special for the world if they take these rules and these teachings seriously. Ki oro v'yish'o shel hayachid, the light and the salvation, I'm going to read this as the salvational powers of, right? It also could be read as worthy of being saved. All of these interpretations change what he could be saying, right? When you say his salvation, are you saying his ability to save others or his being saved? It's not clear, but it's one or the other. Maybe it's both. 
because the light and the sal and the salvation of each individual tuliim him are dependent on midat yediato the extent to which that person knows at hit amkuto the 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 very deepened imprint, the heat baltuto and expression of bolet, right? So amok ayin mem kum ayin mem kuf is deep within. Bet lamed tet is 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 um, bursting out. You can almost think of it as like uh, convex versus concave. So omek is concave, right, down into a surface, and bolet is convex, that which is bursting out. So there has to be a, a heat amkut an internal deep embrace of these concepts. And also it can't just live there, right? If you all take this class and become great Rav Kook uh, cheerleaders and understand these concepts and do nothing with it, you'll have done Hitam Kut, great. But what about Hit Baltut, right? The, the bursting forth, the recognizable um, way in which what you've learned has impacting the world around you. So it's only through the knowledge of the, internal deep and the external throwing out of this great overarching principle or imprint and what is that principle of the awareness of the value of life rock I can't even pronounce this word he's, he's inventing it only through its godliness deep within one's soul. And now he ends with another quote from Parshat Nitzavim, Vahatem Advekim, Chaim Hayom. He's look how he's harnessing this verse. It does not necessarily mean what it means in context. Right? What it means in context is Moshe telling all the Israelites, all of you guys who are here, you've still you've made the trip this long, you're 40 years into it. You're all you're all expressing a certain veku to God. Great, you're still alive. What he is using it for say that if you do this dvekut, this um this deep glued connection to these principles, then we, and only then we will to call yourself truly alive. Okay. Michael, your hand was up. Yes. I, I think it's uh, rabbi. I think it's much more powerful. Um, as you said, the second uh, version, because I, I always, or I have late uh, of lately, especially viewed this as each individual stamp is each of us individually. We we spend a lot of time in our thinking as Jews uh, individually about our individual relation to God. And I think, you know, if if as Rav Cook is sort of saying that that this is important, the Jewish people are important to the world, and the world is important to the Jewish people. It's on a individual. It has to start on an individual basis with each of our unique um, gifts that we have that are our, God, our own God sparks individually, and then that builds in a community sort of way toward toward this idea. Wonderful. God, God sparks is a, is a great is a great image, right? It's 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 the nitzotzot of the Hasidic understanding of of Jewish life. It's it. It, it, it's also part of what animates, you know, a Chabad Lubavitch outreach approach to the world, about which I have many mixed feelings. That I'm not going to go into right now, but but the the, the most um, complementary way I can articulate it is that they believe that every yid out there has an is, has a nitzotz, 
as a spark, as a God spark. And if they can awaken it by having them being more engaged in mitzvot, that they're doing something right for that Jew and they're doing something right for the world. There's actually a piece of that that I, I love. I'm, 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 I'm all in on. Um, maybe I'm all in on it conceptually and have a harder time thinking about it um, when it comes to uh, putting, into, putting it into practice in a proselytizing way. But yes, that, that's, that's very much um, um, a, a well-earned and well-traveled idea that you and you and you and you and you um, each have a God spark and it can only be fully awakened if you understand deep in your soul that which you have to express outward as much as possible, um, the, the, the specific aspects of Jewish living and Jewish life that are most significant for the world around us, including Shemitah. Good. Um, anything else on what we've done so far? Um, so the, the verse that he, we're, we're going to go back to go forward. So the verse that he chose here, that we looked, remember we looked at it in the context, um, look, look, look at this nation who has a God who's close to it. Now that you've read the paragraph and maybe understood it at 70%, why this verse? Right? It's a fine verse, but what is it about this eight word phrase? Because what other nation has a God who is so close to it? How does that serve as the proof text for the paragraph? What's the connection between that verse and what he just said? We just spent 12 minutes trying to decipher. Any thoughts? You can, you can see it in context here. I ask because it's not, it's not obvious. And that's okay that it's not obvious, right? Ruff Cook is not writing. I mean, hopefully he's writing for, for clarity, but he's not writing for ease, right? He's writing from the, the depths of his, of his uh, in, incredibly complex and layered mind. He writes something else elsewhere that might shine light on the connection between that verse and this teaching. So this is um, another teaching by Rav Cook, a, a whole selection of teaching called Orot. He had, um, he, uh, Orot mean lights, so he had um, a volume, Orot HaTshuva, lights of repentance, Orot HaTfila, lights of, um, um, of prayer. And, uh, and they've been published in, by many different publishing houses, including by Mossad HaRav Cook, that institute in Kiryat Moshe in the beginnings of you know, first part of Jerusalem when you come up past the bus station uh, where his institution, the institution his name stands and amongst many things, including Yeshiva, they also have a tremendous publishing house. So in their version of a road, page 104, we have some of this language and he quotes, as you'll see in a second, the first of the the first of the two verse couplet that I put above, it was the second verse that appeared in the text we just read, but it's part of a two verse couplet. So does anybody want to read uh, this English here since the beginning of the inception of this Am? Michael, please go ahead. Sure. Since the beginning of the inception of this Am nation that knew to call in the name of the clear, purely pure godly idea when idol worship is in its wild impurity reigns supreme. So pause. Even in English, Ruff Cook is hard. Like it's really hard to know how to even parse the sentence. I think we're 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 in a long dependent clause here, right? So since the beginning of the inception of this nation, what nation? That nation that knew to call in the name of the clear, pure, godly idea when when idol worship in its wild impurity reigns supreme. What was the aspiration? The aspiration was revealed to erect a great community 
of people that would guard the way of Hashem to do righteousness and justice. Which is a direct quote from um, Parsha. Mm-hmm. I think the Parsha. Oh, no, it might even be Parsha Vayera. Look at that. I think yes. it's from our, our I mean, Parsha, uh, right? Um, so he, he, it's always helpful when you're making a point and you can quote directly from text. Go ahead. This is the. This is the aspiration that stems from the clear, strong recognition and the lofty, all-inclusive demand to redeem humanity from beneath the terrible physical and spiritual suffering and to bring it to full freedom, full of glory and refinement in the light of the godly ideal, and through this to bring about the complete success of mankind. And what is the terrible physical and spiritual suffering that he refers to? Idol worship. Correct. Right. So th- he's writing here um, in the, 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 the line of thinking that says that the Torah's greatest contribution to humanity is as a, a screed against idolatry and the screed against dividing up um, divinity into anything but a singular God, because that leads to uh, my God being stronger than your God and my being able to... Um, uh, en- enslave you and disempower you and disenfranchise you using modern language to express ancient ideas. And Ralph Cook is not the only person to say that thank God for Torah because the world needed Torah to revolutionize the way we thought about the world around us and to get rid of idolatry because idolatry only led to oppression unless you were the one in power wielding your idol. Okay. So we had this aspiration um, and we somehow knew because of what we read last week in Parshad Lech Lecha, that we were to call in the name of the clear, purely godly idea and reject idolatry. Okay, so that's the first half of this. Rebecca? I wanted to ask, is, is the oppression not have to do with um, it's the time Mishpat? He's not referring to that, that it, that is the, the suffering that the other people, to save people from from injustice. Uh, yeah, but I, but I, but I believe he believes it's ineluctable that that injustice and lack of righteousness will stem from an idolatrous world. Meaning, I believe he's making the argument that um, what was revealed to Avraham was that the only way to be shomering the derech Hashem and to be oseing the tzedakah and the mishpat was to put the idols aside and to express complete fealty to a one and singular God who saw everyone created in that God's image and therefore could begin to create a society where justice and righteousness reigned. And he thought that it was incompatible um, in a world without such a realization. And that's in some ways a very um, jingoistic approach, right? So when we're reading, we, we can read the, the, the words and the ideas of, of a luminous figure like Rav Cook and still struggle with much of what he says, right? So I'm not sure I'm willing to stay safe from the Bima that the only path to righteousness and illumination is through monotheism um, or through um, a godly-centered world at all. Some of you read what I, some of the articles that I wrote after my sabbatical four years ago when I had some very powerful and moving spiritual experiences with people who are living in or adjacent to uh, a pagan approach to, um, to divinity and 
how, how moved I was by the ideas that I was being exposed to and the generosity of them to me that made it so much harder for me to say the second paragraph of the Alenu. The second paragraph of the Alenu basically forces us to say three times a day, every day in shul, all of you mean nothing until you convert to belief in the one, in the one God. And I have a hard time saying it now. So I'm not sure I'm on the same page as Rav Cook is completely here, but I think that's the argument he's saying that that how do you get to Vishamru Derech Hashem Mishpat? It's to be to throw a revolution against in the second line idol worship and its wild impurity, thereby um, sparing humanity the terrible physical and spiritual suffering, so that we can bring freedom, glory, and refinement to the Jewish people and the godly ideal, and not just to the Jewish people but to all all nations. Okay, so so. We needed to get through that paragraph to get to this paragraph. This is the paragraph that brings us to the verses that Rav Cook began, the initial paragraph we studied together with. Okay, Mike, you want to keep reading in order to fulfill? In order to fulfill this aspiration, it is particularly necessary that this Sibur will have a political, social, and national governing country state. The Hebrew, room, Hebrew word used is Medina, that exists in the, at the highest level of human culture. Okay, so pause one second. I, for some reason, forgot to translate seaboard. Seaboard means this public, this, 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 um, this public polity of the Jewish people, that this can't just happen by individuals sitting on the mountains in the hills of Judea and pondering it, right? Avraham, for Avraham's work to be Avraham, Avraham had to be Avhamun Goyim. His name really matters, right? He's called Avraham in Parsha Lefakha because he's Avhamun Goyim. He's going to be the, fa- the, the, the father of a great nation because if he's not a father of a great nation, then these great ideas are trees falling in grand forests and no one hearing them. So in order for all this to happen, you had to have one convert, Maybe Chabad is right. And go out and make many converts and create a polity and a social life and a national governing country. He's obviously not referring to Midinat Yisrael yet because that's anachronistic. He's writing this, what did we say? Actually, I forgot when Orod is written, but it's clearly before Midinat Yisrael because Midinat Yisrael was founded in 48. And I think Rav Cook dies in 1935 or 36. So he's talking about Medina as, as um, in a, in, a, in a generic way referring to a state having a polity that exists at that highest level and now infused by that exists at the highest level of human culture. Um, the Hedan Venavon, a wise and intelligent nation and a grand people. Which the, is, to remind you, the language from the first of the two verses yeah. we studied before, right? This is that book when, when Moshe is speaking. Only a wise and discerning nation. That's the verse just before the verse that he began the first paragraph with, which is only a, a nation that has a God as close to them. Okay. And a godly idea. Uh, that rules at a godly, and the godly ideal rules there and gives life to the people and the land with the light of its life. I mean, this, if you heard this coming from an evangelical, it would make sense, right? Only if we create the nation in the, with the light and the spirit of Jesus, will all of the inhabitants of this nation be able to live out their, with, their, with their, the light of their life fully exposed, right? It's, it's, it, he, he's a real believer, right? Um, and, and he's believing that, that, one of the things that makes us unique is our chokhmah and our 
our, our being Navon, our wisdom, our wisdom will help us realize what we have to listen to that's coming from re- ongoing revelation. And that's going to bring light to our life and light to all lives in order to make known. In order to make known that not only the wise, exceptional individuals, pious and holy Nazarim can live in the light of the godly idea, rather that whole nations, the rest of humanity can as well with all the elements of existence, etc. What Michael just read is coming from a different text than what we're reading. But it gives us a window, perhaps, into how he sees these verses in Dvarim, which might give us a window into why he began this paragraph in Shabbat Aretz with that verse in Dvarim. Rav Cook believed that if we are truly in touch with, the, um, with, with, with applying our intellectual prowess to listen to the wisdom that's coming from God through Torah, then in the Orot text that Michael just read, that will allow us to truly be a light unto the nations. And I'm now making the judgment call that when he quotes that verse here in um, uh, in the Hakdama for Shabbat Aretz, Ki mi goy gadol Elohim kruvim that he's also linked in his mind, either consciously or unconsciously, to Am Chacham ben Avon in the previous sentence, which is to say, we have the smarts and the wisdom and the discernment to listen to what the tradition has to say to us about the world. And if we reject it, we're doing a disservice because we've got a portal. We've got um, pearls that the world need. And we, we dare not waste being chacham, being sage enough and being discerning enough to actually put it into practice. That's an uncomfortable thing to say out there in the general world. Like I, I, I try to imagine being at like an in, interfaith, you know, clergy meeting in Los Angeles about environmental issues. I wouldn't use this text or I would use this text. I wouldn't say you guys are all so, so, so um, lucky that you got me at this table because I'm part of an Am Chacham Manavon. I've got the book of Leviticus and I've got the rabbinic text on it. And therefore I can help us figure out how to, you know, put into practice ecological practice, uh, policies for the, for the city of Los Angeles. But he believed it. Right? He believed that, um, um, that we have a chance at enlightenment in our political order, in our environmental order, and that harnessing these particulars, going back to his Klal and Prat from the first paragraph, we can um, reach our highest mission. And our highest mission to Rav Cook was not the flourishing of the Jewish people. Our highest mission was the flourishing of the Jewish people so that we could help the world flourish. That's a very important distinction. Right? And that actually makes it very, very different than Chabad. And I'm not trouncing Chabad, but most of Hasidut would say that our highest mission is the, is the internal flourishing of the Jew so that we can have the, in, the, the full flourishing of the Jewish people. Rav Cook is making the argument in many places, including here, that the best thing that we can do with this gift we have been given is to help the world with the unique light that we have so that it can continue to flourish, whether they adopt Torah and mitzvot or they do not. Okay. Um, let me pause there because uh, I wanted to make sure we at least got through this text today. Um, we might have a, t- a few minutes to start the, the next one, the next little couplet we're going to study, but we certainly won't, won't finish it. So if there are more questions than what we've got so far, we can linger on that and then begin uh, the next paragraph next time, or we can, 
start tiptoeing into the next paragraph now. Thoughts, comments, questions? Well, yeah. I might say, I might ask, uh, like he seems, I mean, his, his thesis is sort of like right on, but then his, his philosophy is obviously rooted in the idea that somehow we're superior to all others, i.e. you wouldn't use this in an interfaith conference. Uh, but um, uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm just, it's just remarkable that, that somehow he reaches his, his conclusion in, in such a, you know, thoughtful way. I mean, not necessarily, a, I mean, he gets to the conclusion that we have to be a light upon the nations and each individual of us has to be that way. But yet he's, he, he does it through a process that makes us like special in, in some ways that might make it, some of us uncomfortable, you know? <laughs> it's sort of a, I love the way you said that, Michael. It's sort of like a ben, almost benign magnanimous, magnanimous superiority complex, right? Yeah. Listen, there are versions of, that happen, of this that happen in a family as opposed to a nation that make a lot of sense, right? Don't I tell my child that they have unique spark given to them by God and that the unique spark that comes from the, the, the cultures and narratives and ways of our family, right? That no one else has. No, no, no one else is a Klickfeld child. You're a Klickfeld child. And there's something special about that. I, don't, I would tell my children that in language like that. And what you need to do with that is to go out and make the world a better place as a result of it, because you're bringing something that no one else brings. You're bringing it because of, of the Judaism that you've imbibed, and you're, you're bringing it because of what you've imbibed in the, in, in the, from the four walls of our house that are different than anyone else's house, right? And, and then, of course, you know, how, how do we parse different versus better, right? Our, certainly, our, our, our country has dealt with that not in great ways for uh, in, in many ways, right? There, there, there are a whole lot of separate but equal uh, graves that people have been buried in, but there's, and, and and I would say that to my child, but I wouldn't say that at parent-teacher conferences, right? So, Rav Cook is saying it to us, and <laughs> I hope this makes sense. to say no one else is listening except us. It's not like Rav Cook was writing this in the Times Herald, you know, Tribune, right? And I also want to remind you, and this helps understand us understand the rabbinic midrashic thrust in the first few centuries of the first millennium. It helps us understand a lot of Rashi's um, takedowns of Rome and Christianity, his commentary, and it helps us understand Rav Cook. It's very cathartic and not all that dangerous as an intellectual idea to profess one's superiority when one has no power because, because it, it, it doesn't threaten the world around you. If we wanted to jump from Rav Cook's philosophy to how aspects of Rav Cook's philosophy have been uh, adap- adapted and maybe, and certainly harnessed and maybe abused by some of his actual and spiritual descendants into a true Jewish triumphalism, that's another great class, right? His son, um, Sviahuda Cook, um, who was a sage in his own right, is considered by some to be near messianic and some to be near um, satanic in terms of how he influenced the burgeoning settler movement before and after the six day war. Right. So if you're on the center and far left of Zionism, you would say that, that the impact of Tzvi Cook's 
harnessing of his father's teachings and, and helped um, put kerosene on the messianic fervor of a, mess, of, a, of a settler movement, informed by some of Rav Cook's kind of internal, um, you know, self-proud texts, that's a problem. Or some might say, thank God for it, because it allowed the Jews to go settle Judea and Samaria with a sense that we have, we have a divine purpose. We're doing something beautiful to the world. So, meaning once you have some of that power and once you have a force, then some of these ideas become a little bit hard. Rav Cook is writing, I forgot when Orot came out, but again, he died in 1934, so he, or 35. So he, he, he wrote and died while his ideas could still live and percolate in a era where they did not have to live concomitant with a military and, and, a, and, a, and, and the actual polity that he speaks about, right? He wants us to be living in a polity so we can express these ideas. He's not a politician. And so he's not writing about what, what the dangers are running a government infused by these ideas. Uh, Rebecca F. and then Rebecca M. And then probably we'll, ha- we'll end. Um, in order to expose more people around the world, why wouldn't you encourage um, observance of the land rules in the diaspora outside the land of Israel? Yeah. Meaning, meaning why wouldn't I or why wouldn't Ruff Cook or both? Why wouldn't Ruff Cook? Yeah. There's a pretty significant concept in Torah called Bal Tosif, which means one shouldn't add. Now, it's laughable because if you look about what, what's happened to Kashrut and certainly Pesach, we have added, burden, added, burdened, added burdens to ourself and the life of the observant Jew that were clearly not intended by the Torah. But it doesn't mean that it isn't a concept that has lost all of its play in the Jewish world, that we don't invent grand obligations. And since the Torah and the rabbinic material on it seemed abundantly clear with no ambivalence that these were laws that related specifically to that sand, that land, it would be halachically um, untoward to say that it also applies to the Jews of San Francisco. Now, um, and certainly Rav Cook would, would have said the same thing, that as he was living in Poland, he would he would have studied those rules, but he would not necessarily have force the farmers in his um in in his town to live by them because he would have been in violation of baltosif and it also helps elevate the land of israel to its own sanctity which itself has beautiful aspects when you think about it from a zionist perspective and troubling aspects when you think about it from a zionist perspective because you can turn the land into an idol which is particularly ironic given how he's introducing all of this with this notion that torah is a rejection of idolatry and some of Rav cook's ideas in the second and third generation you know what I, I i genetic traits get amplified in generations so do ideas by the second and third generation of the wielding of Rav cook's t- um ideas some of those ideas have been turned into um, pathways that help us create idols out of certain ritual things and certain land-based things. And that's a terrible irony. But at its core, he's saying the land also has a special uniqueness that our treatment of it can be, um, can illuminate and inform the entire world. But where is it most potent? Only in the land of Israel. Um, the other way of answering your question, Rebecca saying, maybe we should, right? So there are good answers for why he didn't, but maybe we should have, maybe, you know, the, uh, the, um, you know, the, the labor Zionist, sec, you know, kibbutzim that were founded also in the, in America, in, in little communes should have lived by the, by the laws of Shemitah because there's some wisdom to it. Right. Um, but it, it was never put into practice halakhically. Rebecca M and then we'll close. Um, I don't know if I should 
bring this up now because really what I wanted to say is that I'm actually more confused now with regard to the previous paragraph, which I'm still kind of stuck with. Okay. Um, I had a I it, I had a feeling that those 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 couplets the 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 moon and the sun and then um, and the the shmat shmitah and the shmat yovel um, there was sort of a circling thing that one was circling the other or one was illuminating the other but then um, it got a completely different color from this next paragraph so one of the questions that comes that came to my mind was whether I know Shemitah is 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 um, only observed in Israel, but what happens at the Yovel where the where the slaves are freed, I think, and there's some other is that also confined to the land of Israel, or is that supposed to take place everywhere? That, that's a question. I'll, I'll answer the question briefly, and then we can pick it up the next time. Halachically speaking, yes. According to, you know, um, traditional uh, observed and inherited Jewish law, yes, the Shemitah and the Yovil are only obligatory and only obtained in the land of Israel, right? So the manumission of slaves, um, servants, the idea that land goes back to the original owners, right? Uh, And by the way, even in modern Israel, Shemitah has much more of a play than Yovel in terms of actual practical law. Um, But no Jewish community living outside outside the land of Israel ever had to feel obligated to the the practical implications of the Jubilee if they were outside the land of Israel. And there are even some interesting conversations. um, If you you read some of the Shelot Uchuvot literature, the literature of rabbis answering specific questions that have been sent to them, by constituents or communities, fascinating overlap of halacha and geography, because what is Eretz Israel mapped onto the Middle East, right? And I'm not talking about it now from the perspective of like West Bank or not, you know, where the flag should be, but wh- where does a Jew's obligation to Shemitah end? Is it the borders of the contemporaneous Jewish polity? Right. Or is it biblical Israel? In which case, if I'm a Jew living on the east side of the Jordan River, if I, if I, build a commune in Jordan, and now I'm obligated to Shemitah, because that originally was Medina Israel. Gaza, you can make the argument, was never supposed to be part of Eretz Israel. And so there were really interesting questions, because most, not all, but most of the Jews who were living in Gaza before the Hitnatkut, before the disengagement, were observant Jews. And there were really interesting questions. Are they, are they not obligated to Shemitah? Because they're religious Jews living in the state of Israel as Israeli citizens, but outside the the formal or not formal ancient borders of Eretz Israel, and it was unclear what their obligations were. But all of them, including Yovel, were only for those considered to be inside one version of those boundaries. Um, it's going to feel like a long break, so we're going to do a, a little bit of a catch up next time too, because we're not again, not going to meet for two weeks. But it's the next paragraph that connects uh, the, the the ideas that he was talking about here. Right, we we started here, then we went, took did a, a digression to Orot. It's in the next few paragraphs that he connects the main idea we talked about today with Shemitah. I made some of those connections myself, but we'll see him making it directly. In the meantime, um, have a good few weeks. The next class, I'll just give you the exact date, is um, November 4th at noon Pacific time. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. 
If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.